At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll talk about Joe Biden and Black America. Barbara Ransby will comment. She wrote the great book about Ella Baker, and she's a professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and an activist there. Also, a conversation with Gary Young about the insurrectionists of January 6th. What was the plan, and what is their future? But first, Joan Walsh on the inauguration. Joan, of course, is national affairs correspondent for The Nation and author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? We reached her today in the San Francisco area. Joan, welcome back. So glad to be with you, John. Well, we are recording this on Wednesday afternoon. Joe Biden is the president of the United States. Let's just talk about how happy we are for a minute. This is a great day for America. It's really people all over the world are celebrating today because Donald Trump is no longer president and Joe Biden is. Joe Biden is. And, you know, I am basically more of an optimist uh, I think that's how you get through life as a leftist is that you just have to keep believing that things are going to get better. Uh, but I have been terrified for the last few days. I just, you know, I really wanted to be completely supportive of the idea of doing this inauguration outdoors and doing everything they did. And there was a part of me that was just like, do it in the Oval Office do it at your at your home, do it in a bunker, just <laughs> get it done. Uh, and I am so glad that little part of me did not prevail over me or over, you know, the people who had to make the decision, which was not me. Um, it, it's been an amazing day. It's yeah. Well, and of course, today's event was carried out in defiance of the Trump mob that stormed the Capitol on, on January 6th. You're not the only one who has been thinking about this for the last few days. I think millions of people have been just watching it. It was always kind of in the back of your mind that now we know what Trump supporters are capable of. And it's a, it's a good thing we now can see that Joe Biden refused to be intimidated by, by this and that none of the three former presidents who showed up were intimidated by this, and that they had a very normal celebratory inauguration. You know, the singers sang, the poets read poems, the preachers preached, the president-elect gave an inaugural address, but there was, there was this shadow, and it's great to come out from under that shadow for today. It is incredibly great. Um, I think I'm still shaking a little, you know, yeah. having watched it all. Uh, and, you know, it was hard to watch. I mean, I've been there. I, I, I think I've said this to you before, you know, 
Obama's 2009 inauguration is one of the happiest days of my life. I was right there. And so the fact that we, many of us couldn't be right there is sad, but it was pretty great nonetheless. And, and it was, you know, we're trying to push back a white supremacist insurrection that has gotten too much air, blood, mm-hmm. whatever, from the past president, whatever his name was. Uh, and so I do believe that it was really important that they did this yeah. in public. Yeah. Now, you and I and our colleagues and all really everybody else has to do this major shifting of, of mental gears. Donald Trump has dominated our thinking every day for the last four years. It's like he colonized our minds. That was the one thing that he really was good at. He knew how to stay in the headlines. He knew how to be outrageous and infuriating or even stupid was okay with him as long as he kept us thinking about him. And uh, now we don't have to think about him anymore. Now, Now we can think about something actually constructive, which is, you know, our arguments and debates with the mainstream Democrats about what are the best ways to address the real problems that really face real Americans. And that's a good thing to work on, but it's not easy. It's not easy to stop thinking about Donald Trump because, I mean, right now, if you look at the front pages, it's all about what will Trump do next? Will Trump form his own political party? I'll split other Republicans. And and one of the important messages of January 6th was that they're capable of doing this and they're not going away. But first let's talk about the shift to debating the real issues and what we really should do. Yes, it it will probably take us at least a few days, if not not a week to get there. I mean, at least speaking for me, because right, we are just all, even as we have criticized, as I think you, you and I both have, you know, this attention to his Twitter feed and why are people giving him this much airtime back from the very beginning, back five, six years ago. It is hard to get your mind around how do normal people <laughs> debate? We, we're going to have Senate Budget Committee Chair Bernie Sanders. We're going to have Senate Banking Committee Chair Sherrod Brown. Fabulous. Um, but I think we're just going to have to spend a few days detoxifying, yeah. remembering how to debate Medicare for all. <laughs> I love it, but how do we get there? Yeah, right. Let's talk about it. Already has issued, you know, a dozen, more than a dozen executive orders on all the things that we care about on, you know, a mask mandate for the United States, protecting the DACA kids, uh, rejoining yeah. the Paris, what are they called? Climate Accords. Can't even remember yeah. what they're called anymore. The Paris, Paris Climate Accords. Whatever. <laughs> the Paris, whatever. Uh, canceling the Keystone XL pipeline. All of these great that things. That one I really, I was not prepared for, the Keystone this XL. This is all I great mean. things. But then, of course, already I'm, I'm, I'm gearing up too because... Because, uh, uh, well, let's start with uh, student debt. Biden, one of his first executive orders was uh, postponing 
student debt repayment and interest uh, accruing. Well, that's good, but I thought we were going to get a for, forgiving of all student debt controlled by the federal government. Why, why is this just a pause? Okay, the Keystone XL pipeline, so glad he's doing that. But there's another one in my home state of Minnesota, the Enbridge Line 3 that Bill McKibben has been yelling about. Why can't he also stop Enbridge Line 3? So this is the world that we're going to be in at the Nation magazine and other places, you know. <laughs> yes, uh, it is our job. It is our job. But I think it's our job today, tonight, maybe not tomorrow, to appreciate what he has oh yeah. done. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I don't know what he's going to do ultimately with student debt. He has definitely given a lot of positive signals, but somewhat mixed signals. It's kept a lot of young people and not so young people from being able to have the lives and and even jobs they want. So, so there's going to be, I mean, this is just one tiny little example. There are going to be a lot of frustrations and disappointments for us in the next four years. But I think you're right that today is not a day to go to go there. I've uh, perhaps shed a tear today. Yeah, my house too. You know, um, and the idea of Kamala Harris as our vice president, uh, you know, we as a woman, yes, it's huge. But to have a black woman of Indian American ancestry with her little nieces, who I love, with her Jewish husband, who I also love, this is the American story. Yeah. This is the American story yeah. at this point in time. And I'm sorry. I doubt we have any of them. But if we do, I'm sorry if any Trump supporter feels left out by this story. But you don't have to be. Because if you look in their family tree on all the sides, you will find someone like you. And that's what I don't know how to deal with as we think about trying to get out of this nightmare where however many, 74 million Americans voted for that yeah, criminal. Yeah. Let's, I think we do need to talk about that a little bit because the main takeaway for from the, insur the, the insurrection of January 6th is that they are capable of doing this. And for them, this was not the end. This was one step into their future. Now, there are only a couple of thousand of them. But as you say, 74 million people voted for Trump. And yeah, I mean, I want to believe that a lot of those 74 million, but I can't say most, were as horrified as we were by seeing what we saw two weeks ago. I don't think that any that anything close to a majority of them was standing by going rah, rah, this is great. Uh, but, I, you know, we don't know. And when I think about these last four years and we've all made jokes about the New York Times and other news organizations doing their profiles of people in diners in red counties. Oh, the Trump, you know, this Trump supporter is still a Trump supporter. 
they never actually captured the violence that, I, I mean, I'm not saying that those, that the people that they wrote about were violent, but this is something different that nobody captured. I, I, I shouldn't say nobody because, you know, a few news organiza- organizations did something, but we have to spend much more time on it. You know, and I, I mean, I wrote this piece that's up on the nation today talking about, I'm like, all about the empowerment of women, baby. How did I miss the emergence of somebody like Lauren Boebert? How did, how have I not tried to cover, and I promise I will, the emergence of this crazy Trump supporting, QAnon supporting female brigade. I mean, watching two weeks ago, Obviously, it was mostly white men. Let's just not get that wrong. It was. Right. But there were a lot of white women. There were a shocking number. I, I cannot in my brain do like, was it 10%, 30%? I'm not sure. It wasn't 50, but it was somewhere between 10 and 30. And I'm like, I, I give my, my women, my people so much credit for getting Trump right. But those women are trying to tell me something different. So it's another thing that I will be trying to write about in the weeks to come. In conclusion, you know, we've lived through four years that have been horrible and sometimes scary and those that's come to an end. And now we have a completely different world where we're going to be pushing uh, the Biden administration to do more, go farther, try harder. And that's going to be frustrating sometimes and disappointing sometimes, but it's, it's great to have those be our frustrations and disappointments instead of what we've been through. Absolutely. I can't wait. In Joe Biden's first speech as president-elect, He promised Black America that he would have their backs. Now he needs to take prompt action to fulfill that pledge. For comment, we turn to Barbara Ransby. She's a historian, writer, and longtime political activist. She's a distinguished professor of African-American studies, gender and women's studies, and history at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where she directs the campus-wide social justice initiative. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and The Nation. And she's best known as the author of the award-winning biography, Ella Baker and the Black Freedom Movement, A Radical Democratic Vision. Her most recent book is Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century. We reached her today at home in Chicago. Barbara Ransby, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, John. Well, before we talk about Biden's first 100 days, I'd like to spend just a minute on the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. The FBI and the police have arrested just under 100 people as of uh, today. We're taping this on Tuesday, charged, you know, with participation in the insurrection that tried to stop Congress from certifying Joe Biden as the winner of the Electoral College. But when Black Lives Matter protests filled the streets of Washington last June, D.C. police arrested more than three times as many people. There were 316 people arrested on June 1st. 
This is from CNN, which also points out that many of the insurrectionists arrested after January 6th had less serious charges than the Black Lives Matter uh, demonstrators. I wonder if you had any comment on this difference and, and on the difference between the Black Lives Matter protests in D.C. and what happened at the Capitol. Right. And I'm, I, thank you for that question. Um, of course, I have comment on that. Um, you know, I, I'm glad you said what happened at the at the, the U.S. Capitol, because it, I, I don't want to even call it a protest. Um, I think it was a, a white nationalist attempted coup. Uh, some people have dismissed it because of the kind of buffoonery of some of the participants. But but often coups and insurrections of all type have many different parts and moving parts. So I think it was a very serious um, action uh, fueled by white nationalism. And I think we, you know, we see the racism in law enforcement at the local level, at the national level, um, et cetera, in terms of disparity in treatment. I mean, clearly what we're finding out about what happened on January 6th is that in some ways it was uh, an inside job that, that they had, the, the insurrectionists had um, inside information. There were these tours that were given the day before January 6th, which were had to have been authorized by a member of Congress. We know that police from around the country participated. We know that there have been um, allegations of racism in the ranks of the Capitol Police for some time now. So uh, all of this makes it a very different phenomenon than people protesting systemic racism uh, in the streets of cities around the country and, and in the Capitol. We, you know, we can overgeneralize sometimes and create these false symmetries, you know, people in the street. Well, why are they in the street? What are they doing? What are they demanding? What recourse do they have? So I don't even want to put the events in the same category except to show this contrast. A lot more to say about that in terms of how serious that threat is, because in some ways it is a response to millions of people, including millions of white people, uh, in the street protesting white supremacy and racism the previous spring and summer. So this is a reaction to that, a fear that a rising movement that envisions a different future um, is about to to take something away from what some of these people feel they have. So Biden's first hundred days, what's at the top of your list of priorities for black America? Should it be doing something about the police who started all this by killing George Floyd in my hometown of Minneapolis and then Breonna Taylor in Louisville and Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta and so many other people whose names we remember now? Yeah. I mean, clearly, you know, race is at the heart of so much that's wrong with this country. And I, I would add, you know, what I call racial capitalism, what many people call racial capitalism, uh, that is that nexus between economic disenfranchisement and racism. So clearly, uh, Biden has to step forward with a very forceful uh, agenda for combating racism, racism in the police, racism in education, uh, racism that permeates uh, major institutions of our, of our society. And then there's an economic agenda. And, you know, he has said that he's going to devote $1.9 trillion to, uh, to various kinds of programs. And sadly, that may not be enough because I think the, the issue of wealth disparity, which is also color coded, um, is so obscene, so severe uh, that we need a massive uh, infusion of resources, creations of jobs, debt relief, infrastructure development that can, in fact, create uh, jobs, you know, the Green New Deal. And what my colleague Colette Pichon-Battle calls the Red, Black, and Green New Deal, which is a new deal that makes sure to include um, often disenfranchised communities of color. 
so yeah, I mean, those, those are some of the things at the top of my list, but I think it's going to be a process, you know, um, one of the things that I, I wrote in the, the article in the nation about the first hundred days is that we also need to take movement building and civil society building as seriously as we take electoral work. And it's not to disparage or minimize electoral work, obviously critically important, but we also need to, you know, we need to fight the hearts and minds battle. If, if, if last week showed anything, it's that, you know, the 70 million people that voted for Trump, you can't arrest all them. You can't cite all them. Uh, they weren't all there in the Capitol, by the way, you know, thank goodness. But there are a lot of people who have been fooled, seduced, coerced, manipulated, had a spell put on them uh, by this maniacal uh, political figure. And so we need to we need to be about undoing that on many different levels. So uh, let's talk about some um, specifics in the new issue of The Nation, you talk about things Biden can do immediately through executive action without having to get a bill through Congress. The most obvious one is student debt. Uh, the word as of today is that Biden is ordering the pausing of student debt payments. This is not exactly what you had in mind. Uh, not what I had in mind, not what, uh, you know, the tens of thousands. And, and I know you, I think you've had Astra Taylor on your program and, and yes. the people uh, who, uh, who do work on, on the Debt Collective, which is a very, very important campaign and we shouldn't undermine it. The, it is so morally indefensible. I'm a, I'm a college professor. So at an at a urban public university where I have a very diverse student body. And, you know, I'm ashamed that that uh, universities, colleges and universities take so much money from students and that the government doesn't see this as a worthwhile investment um, and that so many of my students have to go so deeply in debt. So that should be a top priority. It should be a cancellation of the debt and, 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 and there shouldn't be a compromise about it. I mean, what is the other side of that argument? I, I just don't understand it. So yeah, I think that should be really important. And of course, you know, again, to, to bring race back into this because I, you know, I like to remind my friends on the left that we don't have a class analysis over here and a race analysis over here. They are intimately bound up with one another. So even when we look at something like the debt, student debt, disproportionately African-American uh, students are taking out more debt. They don't have family wealth. They don't have other options. Uh, the debt often, you know, the loans often subsidize families that have no resources and so forth. So a part of a racial justice agenda is also a part of a debt relief uh, agenda. In The Nation, you remind us that the Movement for Black Lives laid out a set of principles to combat racism, something they called the BREATHE Act. To me, one of the most impressive things about Black Lives Matter is the way they've been able to combine protest and politics. Millions of people in the streets, but it's not just to be in the streets. They also support candidates and they propose legislation, policies, which they then pressure Congress to do something about. The BREATHE Act is one of them. I think a lot of our of our listeners and readers don't know about this. Tell, tell us about the BREATHE Act. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so the BREATHE Act came out of the policy uh, table and policy committee uh, of the Movement for Black Lives. And it is a really, it's, it's a mock piece of legislation to be uh, used in different contexts. So, you know, it talks about moving toward divesting from police and investing in communities, understanding some of the root causes uh, of violence in our community, some of the root causes of 
uh, of various behaviors that might be labeled criminal is, you know, is economics, right? And so investment in our communities, investment in our schools um, is a part of what that bill calls for. It calls for mental health uh, intervention and resources, which is much, much needed. I mean, so many of the cases of police violence have been cases that required a social worker and some compassion and somebody who could talk, uh, you know, could deescalate um, a situation. And the others, you know, involve people who are economically vulnerable. You know, when you think of some of the high profile cases of, you know, Eric Garner selling loose cigarettes to subsidize family income or, you know, another person who was selling CDs out of the back of his car out in Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or even George Floyd, who was suspected of passing a counterfeit $20 bill. We don't know that he was doing that, but he was living an economically vulnerable life. So the Breathe Act tries to take those economic realities into consideration, um, as well as moving toward radically rethinking safety uh, and security. And I have to say, it's not just about um, a, a, an omnibus bill an omnibus bill at the uh, federal level, but it's also about taking parts of the BREATHE Act and applying them to state legislatures. We just had a victory here in Illinois where it looks like we're gonna eliminate cash bail, which is a major victory and was a major part uh, of the BREATHE Act. And some of the local activists that I work here, uh, work with here, um, Rich Wallace, who works with an organization called uh, Equity and Transformation, uh, people in the informal economy was very instrumental in, in getting that to one of our progressive uh, state legislators. So yeah, so that's, you know, just some snippets from, from the Breathe Act, but um, the Vision for Black Lives was another document that addressed many, many progressive policies. And these are not policies where, you know, people are demanding just make things better for Black people. These are policies that will make things better for everybody. Uh, and so because Black people are often left out, it's saying center Black communities. And, and in doing that, it, it will have a far-reaching effect. Your piece in The Nation was written before the Trump mob storming of the Capitol. You argue there that uh, we need to return to the streets in a show of strength and unity, wearing masks, uh, of course. And you're right, we should fill the streets in D.C. and throughout the country to remind Biden that the millions who elected him expect to see policies that will improve the lives not only of working people of color, but of everyone. How and when do you think we should return to the streets, especially in, in view of the possibility that we have learned about since January 6th of facing off with the same people who stormed the Capitol, who, as you have said, one of their fundamental motivations is white power? Well, I don't think we can, you know, we, we, we can't shrink and, and hide from this, right? Um, in major struggles all over the world against authoritarian rule and dictatorships, I mean, the biggest enemy is fear. And if people say, oh, my God, these are violent people, they, I, can't, I can't go to a demonstration because there might be some sort of retaliation. I mean, I think we should have security. I think we should be careful. I think we should, you know, plan our tactics and our logistics very, very uh, responsibly. But the, when we get to the point where we're afraid to go out of our house for a rally or a vigil or a demonstration in support of justice uh, against injustice, then we've already lost the battle. We have already lost the battle. You know, I talked to my, uh, I have some very dear friends from Uruguay who, um, you know, lived under the dictatorship there. And they said, you know, the dictatorship 
took five years to gel, you know, and in that time, there were literally fights in the streets between, you know, progressive students and leftist students and, you know, right wing uh, supporters uh, of, of, of the, the opposition movement. That was true in Hitler's Germany. That was certainly true in, in Italy before Mussolini. So, you know, we know that intimidation, fear and bullying uh, of those of us who are uh, opposed to authoritarianism, opposed to fascism in any form. We know that that kind of challenge is going to be there. But I say, you know, they are many, but we are more. And I think that's important. So I can't say they are few and we are many. They are many, but we are more. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, standing together and standing uh, resolute is very important. I would love to see a massive demonstration, a massive filling of the streets with a very, very different message, with a very, very different vibe on the anniversary of King's assassination, which is uh, April 4th, because King died fighting alongside sanitation workers, people who were, you know, doing some of the dangerous, dirty work in Memphis. And he marched with them and uh, he understood that connection between the racial justice fight and the economic justice fight. So uh, I think it will be very symbolic, you know, thinking of his unfinished agenda of fighting militarism, poverty, and racism. You know, if we had um, a show of strength from those of us with a more hopeful vision. They are many, but we are more. Barbara Ransby, she wrote about how Biden can support Black America and why we should fill the streets to remind him that millions who elected him expect to see policies that will improve our lives. You can read her piece at thenation.com. Barbara Ransby, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Now we want to talk about the coming fight against Trump and Trumpism. And for that, we turn to Gary Young. He's an award-winning former columnist for The Guardian. Now he's a professor of sociology at the University of Manchester and a member of the nation's editorial board. His books include The Unforgettable, Another Day in the Death of America. We reached him today at home in London. Gary, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, I'd like to start with the January 6th attack on the Capitol, just to review briefly for months, Trump had been calling on his supporters to come to Washington for a rally and some kind of protest against Congress, which was scheduled that day to officially declare that Joe Biden won the election. This was the culmination of Trump's effort to remain in the White House around the big lie that he had really won the election. So on January 6th, he gave a speech to thousands of people, urged them to march on the Capitol. They did. Most of the mainstream media say that what happened was an attempted coup, an insurrection to stop the certification of Biden as president-elect and keep Trump as president. But here's my question. What was the plan? How was that supposed to work? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to find a word for this thing, right? It was definitely an insurrection. You know, it was a violent uprising against a, a legitimate government. I think the people who actually were involved clearly had no plan. Their plan was to, to see what they could do. And there was an, a, a significant amount of entitlement in that. They didn't think 
maybe we'll get shot. I mean, one person did get shot, but they, they didn't think maybe we'll get arrested. I mean, you know, which is why they put their stuff on Facebook and then quickly erased it uh, when they realized that things hadn't gone their way. But they get in there and there is no plan. They don't try and get the police on their side, although by most accounts, first of all, some of them were policemen. And secondly, they might have had a receptive audience there. Um, they're not trying to get the army on their side. I mean, when I think of coups the world over, this strikes me as something more ridiculous and something that, I mean, obviously it's important. And even though they take them, don't take themselves seriously, we should. But that it was the spectacle that they were after. And, and one way to know this is that they do certify the results. And yet those people who broke into the capital still claim that it was a victory, even yes. though the aim, the very aim of what they planned to do didn't happen. They still claim victory. Yeah, there was this uh, more scary moment where one of the slogans was hang Pence because Vice President Mike Pence, who presides over this ceremonial event, had rejected this nutty idea of Trump's that Pence could simply declare Trump the winner since he was the presiding officer over the Senate. And this led them to the, the, the insurrections to say hang Pence. They put up a... a gallows outside the Capitol, and they looked for Pence, but they couldn't find him. He was hiding. <laughs> so what do you make of this effort, this apparent effort to hang the vice president of the United States? Well, I mean, first of all, it's very retro, isn't it? I mean, we <laughs> yes. have to get rid of hanging. I mean, you know, I mean, America has an awful record of execution, but hanging, I mean... And who knows, you know, one jest, but who knows what would have happened if they had got hold of Pence or Pelosi or any of those people. But first of all, you see the shrinking base emboldened. I mean, we should not write these people off at all, but shrinking that if Pence is too left wing for you, <laughs> if Pence is too liberal, if and and if you want to hang Mike Pence, then you you've really painted yourself into a bit of a corner there. Well, I want to go back to your point, a very interesting argument that even though they didn't stop the Congress from certifying Biden as the winner, they left claiming that they'd been a success. And uh, let's just for a moment uh, consider the possibility that there was a reason they considered it a success, They that they were so delighted at what they had achieved, that they had accomplished something which they were proud of which was, I guess, that they could storm the Capitol successfully. And, and that for them, this is not the end. This is, this is a step. Oh, yeah. No, I think, that, um, I think that there is a rationale for them saying, we have shown our strength. We have proved our viability as a fighting force. We have shown, we have proved our mettle. And it's, what's true is that Almost no other protest group could have done what they did. Yeah. They would have been gunned down. That would, have, that would have been it. And so they have achieved what nobody else, no other protest group could have achieved. Uh, they have instilled a sense of uh, uh, fear into American political culture. They 
quite small group of people driven to a large extent by some very weird conspiracy theories have established themselves as a force to be reckoned with. Now, you know, we can argue about how strong, how viable that force is, but when the nation's 50 capitals are on lockdown, when, Ameri when, when Washington, D.C., for an inauguration that relatively few people will go to because of COVID, um, is like a huge military encampment, then it wouldn't make sense to say that they've achieved nothing. They've achieved, mm. they achieved in that sense, more than any of the legal challenges or, or any of that. So they demonstrated they could storm the Capitol successfully, and that marks the end of the Trump presidency. But it's certainly not the end of the Trump movement. 74 million people voted for Donald Trump. Trump got more votes than any candidate in American history, with one exception, Joe Biden. I think we need to talk about what's the relationship of that small number, a few thousand people who stormed the Capitol, and the millions of people who voted for Trump. Is this the vanguard, or is this just a crazy, isolated fringe? I think they're definitely not isolated. And... Uh... We're going to have to redefine fringe, aren't we? <laughs> it's not that this force is here to stay. It's that it never went away, and now it feels emboldened, and that there will be large numbers of people who will disassociate, who can, in their mind, disassociate themselves from that particular manifestation of violence while embracing the broader, what I would call, violent assault on America. On the other hand, uh, to, today there's news that Mitch McConnell, you know, the Republican leader of the Senate, says he welcomes Trump's impeachment because Trump did incite an insurrection. This is like the most powerful Republican in, in Congress who's been a complete Trump loyalist for the last four years. Apparently he has made a calculation that the political future of his party and the chances of him returning to be the majority leader in two years would be better without Trump as the leader of the party. Uh, what do you make of Mitch McConnell breaking with Trump over this? Well, you know, in, in the piece I wrote for the New Statesman, I started to say that they were jumping ship. But then I thought it's actually more like they are clambering out of a shipwreck. You know, <laughs> the ship has crashed. And uh, there is this kind of thing, you know, where they see which way the wind is blowing, but it has to be blowing a gale before they do anything. Now, it's a gamble. It's a gamble that he's making that as to the the viability of Trump's base, the degree to which he wants to take on that fight. I mean, there would have been a realignment within the Republican Party anyway because the president's leaving. Just there was a realignment in the Democrats afterwards. And because Trump was such an individual, really, without kind of much much roots actually in the party. His his you know, his base came not through the Republican channels, not through the Orthodox Republican channels. So that realignment now will take place with this in mind. But I don't get a sense, and you know, you said it, Mitch McConnell was with him all the way, right until 
you know, the last couple of weeks. He was with him for kids in cages, for all of that stuff. So the realignment will be around, unless there is a political, ideological challenge, as opposed to this, which is a, it's important, but it's a procedural challenge. Then there will be a realignment around the most palatable form of white supremacy and xenophobia that they can come up with. That what this, for a certain kind of Republican, what this insurrection did was give white supremacy a bad name and nationalism a bad name. And they want to return to the kind of white supremacy and kind of nationalism that kind of good old boys can get around uh, and that is can cohere as opposed to kind of divide. Now, that may turn into an ideological struggle within the Republican Party as to its future and what it might do because free market economics doesn't need racism to operate. If there were no black people in America, you you know, you could still have a free market um, uh, economics. It would just be kind of, it would just be differently configured. But at the moment, that's not what I see. What I, what I see is a clambering off the shipwreck, a kind of um, a desperate paddling to shore and uh, that, you know, not to overdo the metaphor, but that one last big wave doesn't come and just kind of sink them all. He's bad for the brand. He's bad for the brand. Gary Young, he wrote about America's civil war for the new statesman. Gary, thanks for talking with us today. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to The Nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. 
by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. Experience the empowering feeling of the Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now for April 1st. Get $750 cash towards the lease of our 2024 NX350 all-wheel drive. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Call 1-800-USA-LEXUS for important lease cash offer and pricing details. Restrictions apply. Not all customers will qualify. Offer available in the Lexus Eastern area in April 1st, 2024.